Hello, everyone, and welcome this, to this edition of the Texas Sports Nation podcast. I'm Steve Schaefer of the Houston Chronicle, along with Astros beat writer Chandler Rome, who is in Seattle on the eve of a three-game series between the Astros and Mariners, having just uh, gotten there from Phoenix, where the Astros split two games with the Diamondbacks. And Chandler, small sample size. We've talked about this before. In fact, I was thinking if this were a typical year, we'd still have a week of spring training left. Uh, but now we're uh, seven days, eight days into the season, and uh, Astros are four and two. And I'd ask you first, just some of your general impressions of the club. Well, yeah, it looks like they should probably still be in spring training, some of these hitters. And, and look, um, some of the offense has not been maybe what fans are accustomed to seeing, but I think you have to remember as well that we should still be in spring training. There are some guys that are just quite frankly not ready to be hitting big league pitching right now. Dusty Baker probably put it best yesterday saying you know, th- that his team's not probably ready right now to hit off-speed pitches. Um, Jose Altuve swung and missed yesterday against a hanging changeup from Noe Ramirez in the in the 10th inning. And that's a pitch that if you hang anything to Jose Altuve, he usually crushes it. And he they're just not there yet. And they're not making excuses. And, you know, the fact that they are four and two just kind of shows the sheer talent that that is on this team. And I think is a true testament to the pitching staff, which has been very, very good through the first six games of this season. They have a 1.69 staff ERA, which is the best in baseball as of games beginning on Thursday. Um, The first turn through the rotation, um, you really had no complaints with the five starters in their first starts through. Um, Framber Valdez was not as great in his second start on Wednesday against the Diamondbacks, but then you had Christian Javier come in and strike out five and three hitless innings of relief. So, this pitching staff is carrying this team right now, and I think everyone sort of expected that after a short spring training buildup, but I think the pitching has maybe looked even better than I thought it would. Obviously, Justin Verlander came back and, and looked very, very good. Framber Valdez dealt on opening day, and then the bullpen, um, the back end of this bullpen has thrown about as well as you can ask them to throw, and that is with Ryan Presley uh, not showing his normal fastball velocity, still maybe building up in spring training. He's still getting the results we're accustomed to seeing, and everyone in front of him is throwing very well. So long and short of it, the Astros are being carried by their pitching staff right now. Talking about that bullpen, you know, we, we talk about, obviously, the big splashy moves that teams make, uh, and there were a lot of them. There were a lot of high-priced free agents over the offseason, and f- former Astro Carlos Correa among them, certainly. But uh, one of the moves that, that James Click made that seems to be looking like it was pretty good was the acquisition of, of Hector Neris, who has closing experience, but right now is being used in the eighth, but he kind of gives you that backup to Presley. What, what have you seen from him? And uh, I know you wrote about him a couple of weeks ago and the way he has really assimilated himself onto this team. Well, a lot of the young guys like him because he took them all to dinner in spring training. He took all of the uh, Latin American minor league uh, prospects in Astros camp. He took them all to dinner. And, and this is the kind of guy Hector Neris is. I had heard from people that cover the Phillies and you hear from people in the game that this is just a genuine, really nice dude and a guy that a lot of the young Latin pitchers can gravitate towards. The Astros have a lot of those, especially in their bullpen. This is another kind of mentor for them. I, I think in some ways, Hector Neris is kind of this season's Pedro Baez signing. This is what they wanted Pedro Baez to be. Pedro Baez has obviously not turned out to be that. I'm not sure how much longer the Astros can keep Pedro Baez on their active roster, but Hector Neris is certainly turning into the guy that maybe we thought Pedro Baez was going to be. Maybe that, that veteran bridge reliever in the back end, a guy that 
if Presley's down, they have they have no problem putting Narison in a safe situation, a guy that can be the fireman if they need him to. He's got that splitter that really neutralizes left-handed hitters. He's a, he throws right-handed, but because he has that splitter, they can use him against left-handed hitters a lot. And you saw that in the Angels series he faced. Uh, Otani a couple of times he faced Jared Walsh, who's a really good left-handed hitter. So um, having a lot of those guys that – right-handed pitchers that can get left-handed hitters out. That's a big deal for this Astros bullpen. And he just provides a, a, a sense of comfort too. And again, you don't want to be infatuated with small sample sizes. He's appeared in four games, but he's faced 12 batters and retired 10 of them um, with three strikeouts. And probably more importantly, after you watch Wednesday's game, no walks, he's come out of the bullpen. He's thrown strikes. Um, he threw on back-to-back days. He threw on both days of the diamondback series and looked very good in that second day. Um, so he has been, again, like small sample size, take that into consideration, but he's been everything the Astros could hope for and more. Coming up in this series uh, against the Mariners, we're going to get to see Justin Verlander for the second time this season. Uh, looked good in his first game, didn't get any offensive support uh, in that particular game against the Angels. But we talked some in our preseason preview about kind of the, the demeanor Verlander has had. But uh, based on that first outing, what do you think in terms of uh, how he's going to perform this season? He, he certainly looked healthy. Oh, and that's number one. Like as long as he came out of that start healthy and felt good and had no residual after effects, the Astros were thrilled. He could have, obviously they loved that he went out there and only allowed one run in five innings and looked like vintage Justin Verlander, but he could have gone out there and, you know, given them less and struggled and allowed runs. But the biggest thing would have been that he came out of it healthy. But I mean, the stuff looked really, really good. And I mean, it, it kind of sent chills up your spine if you were in the ballpark watching it because everyone knew what was happening in that fifth inning. You know, he lets the first two batters on, and then Mike Trout and Shohei Otani are coming up for their third look at him. And th- this is their ace. And, I mean, this this is what an ace does. He bears down, and it was vintage Justin Verlander from pitch one till the end. I mean, he, he emptied the tank, got up to 95, 96 in that fifth inning when he knew his outing was over. He was emptying the tank against Otani. He got Trout to fly out to center field, and he got a little fist pump coming off the mound. And you could tell that Justin Verlander was back. Now, um, is he going to be that good the whole season? Who knows? Who can say? Um, but, you know, he, he will get a day's extra rest uh, this turn in the rotation. He's going to pitch Saturday uh, against the Mariners. That will give him one extra day of rest. Um, they could do that this time because of the off days. But I think it'll be very interesting to see how the Astros map out their rotation going forward, especially after this homestand, this upcoming homestand, when they run into that 33-game and 34-day streak. Um, could they go to a six-man rotation? Are they going to keep it in five-man uh, and just kind of keep going that way? Could Christian Javier slide into that rotation? Because he's he's looked good enough to where he probably deserves a spot in the road in that rotation, but no one's you know no one's screaming to take them out yet. So I think a lot of it would depend on how Verlander's feeling. Does he need that extra day of rest? Does he feel like that that uh, that extra day is beneficial this early in the season, or does he want to slide back in? to an every fifth day role. And if he does that, the Astros may roll with a five-man rotation. One development that happened uh, during this road trip and the course of it is, is Lance McCullers Jr. at least starting to throw. What can you tell us about, I don't know if progress is the right word because he just started, but I guess it's progress to some extent. Oh, it's it's a huge benchmark to clear. I mean, look, the fact that he's throwing a baseball, he hadn't thrown a baseball since mid-January when he had his setback. And um, 
you know, it, it may seem like nothing to the average fan, but this is a huge deal for guys that have had elbow injuries, guys that have had arm injuries, anything like that. Being able to get out there and throw the baseball is that's a big that's a big step forward. Now, there is no timetable, there is no schedule. Um, as of now, he's just gonna he's scheduled to throw again off of flat ground here in Seattle. He's scheduled to do it on Friday. I'm not sure if they're gonna keep that schedule or, or move it up a little bit, but you know, Lance seemed very encouraged. He said he's been passing all of the benchmarks that the training staff's been putting at him. He said he's been passing with flying colors. He said they actually moved his throw day up a couple of days because he was doing so well. Um, as far as a when he could possibly be back, again, we don't want to. I don't want to speculate, but I'll just tell you how McCullers uh, went. How McCullers described it himself: Look, he is starting basically from ground zero right now. Um, think of him playing catch and chase field this past week as the first time he picks up a baseball in the off season. I'm not talking about in spring training. I'm talking about think of this as the first time he picks up a baseball in January. Now, he said he in a normal offseason when he's healthy, he would start playing catch in late December or early January to be ready to report to spring training in mid-February. And then in a six-week spring training, he's able to throw bullpen sessions. He's able to face hitters, live batting practice, get into games, and then he's ready for the season. So you're still looking at probably a month and a half, two months here for Lance McCullers, and that's presuming no setbacks. That's presuming everything goes according to plan. So I would not expect him back maybe until late May at the absolute earliest. Uh, I'd be looking more toward June. And, and look, the Astros will welcome him back whenever he can get back, but they need to make sure he's healthy, and they need to make sure that when he comes back, they don't have to shut him down again, and this this is an injury that's not going to be a recurring one. And I presume that once he's ready, you're gonna you're talking about a minor league rehab assignment, I mean, he's going to need a few outings down there to ramp up for the majors. Oh, for sure. He'll have to make at least three or four minor league rehab assignments, and they may not all be at Affiliated Bowl. He may throw a couple in, in West Palm Beach. If that's where he's rehabbing, they may get him into a rookie league game, may get him into an extended spring training game for a couple, a couple maybe two or three inning stints, and then move him to maybe Sugarland or Corpus, depending on where they are on the schedule, to get his longer uh, outings. And But again, this, we're, we're talking so far off right now, you know, when he throws again on Friday or Saturday here in Seattle, it's going to be off a of flat ground again. There's not going to be much intensity to it. It's going to be like a 20 to 25 pitch like you and I would play catch from about 60 feet. So this is a very slow process, a very gradual process, but that shouldn't um, that shouldn't belittle what the, the progress he has made and the step he took. Because believe me, getting out there on flat ground to play catch, that's a big step. Well, let's talk about some of these uh, hitters for a moment. As you said, six games, can't draw any conclusions really uh, from six. Yeah, Kyle Tucker's struggling a little bit. Altuve's struggling. Um, there have been some bright spots, and and we have talked about Alex Bregman and his power. He's got a couple home runs. He's hitting the ball well. Are you? Do you see any visible difference from him at the plate from what we've seen really almost the last two years? Well, he would tell you he probably should have had a third home run in Arizona on Wednesday. He hit a ball. Uh, just absolutely crushed a ball to the left field wall when the Astros needed a clutch hit in the worst. I think it was in the sixth or the seventh inning. I can't remember the ending off the top of my head, but there were two on with one out. He came up and absolutely destroyed a ball. It had a 
760 expected batting average according to Statcast. Now you don't want to attribute, you don't want to just take that as gospel. But I was there and I, I heard it off the bat, and it sounded like a homer off the bat, and everyone, everyone in the ballpark thought it was. But anyway, so that should just kind of show you, you know, he's making a lot better contact with the ball. He looks healthy. I think the the most important thing that, that I've seen is he's his defense has been very very good, and, and I'd never question that it would be, but. He looks a lot more free and easy playing defense. He's moving laterally very well. Um, he had a play in the Anaheim series. He had to lunge to his right to stop a ground ball. He was the only defender on the left side in a shift. And, you know, the the explosion he had off of, off of his lower half was very encouraging. So um, he looks about as healthy as we've seen him look. Um, look, the plate discipline is always going to be there. He's only struck out twice. He's walked twice. He's, he's I mean – that never wavered even when he was hurt. But, you know, seven for 21 through the first six games, he sat out one of those games as a manager, Dusty Baker, trying to gradually build his regulars up. So he's really only played in five games. Seven for 21, they'll take that any day from him. It looks like he's running pretty well, too. I believe it was on the, the go-ahead two-run single on Sunday that Trout misplayed the ball a little bit and Bregman took off her second and had no issues whatsoever, it appeared. Yeah, for sure. And that's good, too. And when you talk about um, looking good on the bases, I think you have to bring up Jose Altuve, too, who certainly looks like a guy who wants to run a little bit more. Um, He's stolen two bases already in five games. He stole five bases in 146 games last year. Now, this is Dusty Baker has talked for as long as he has been the Astros manager about how he wants speed. He's an older school kind of manager. He likes the stolen base. He likes action on the base paths. But the stolen base is kind of not in vogue in today's game. Maybe you're going to see Jose Altuve be a little more aggressive on the base paths. And I think somebody we want to talk about next, I, I think Jeremy Pena, if he can get on base, He's fast enough, too, where I think he can create some havoc on the base paths as well. Well, let's talk about Jeremy Pena, the kid who is Carlos Correa's replacement. A lot of um, pressure is the right word. A lot of attention, certainly, that he's gotten uh, before the season as the guy they feel that can step in. Uh, pretty good first week in the majors, 7 for 20, 40, 292, a couple three-hit games. In that in that two um, the 3-2 extra inning loss to Arizona on Wednesday, he was in the middle of that tying run action. He had a guy at second. He got a hit and um, got him to third. I believe that was McCormick, and then Maldonado had the sacrifice fly. So um, a weekend, he kind of looks the part of a major league shortstop. Uh, is he going to... Is he going to sustain it? That's kind of a tough uh, to be dogmatic about. But what do you see from Pena? Look, he's not overwhelmed, and and I don't think every I don't think anyone thought he would be. But to hear that is one thing. He plays with like a I, I don't know if poise and polish can be like tangible or you can see it, but he certainly plays with. You can just tell by the way he plays that this is not going to overwhelm him. If Look, he's the only one that knows on that knows what's going on inside of him. But if he's nervous, he is not projecting it at all. He looks about as polished as any 24-year-old kid in the big leagues can look. Um, I thought probably the biggest sign to me that this is not going to be too big for him. He looked straight up overmatched against Shohei Otani on opening night. Struck out three times was not even close at some of the stuff he was swinging at, looked completely overpowered. And that's not, you know, that's nothing to be mad at. I mean, a lot of people look overmatched against Shohei Otani. He comes back the next night and has a three-hit game. Hits the home run with his parents being interviewed, finishes a triple shy of the cycle, 
And after the game, it was just like he had played another game in Corpus. I mean, he, he, he smiled and you could tell he was excited, but this was not going to be the, like the, the biggest moment of his life when it should have been. I mean, this is the biggest moment of this kid's life. And he acted like it was, you know, yeah, he said it was a dream come true. He said all the right things, but you would never know it from the way he was carrying himself. And I think they're going to be just fine with this guy. Now, look, you mentioned, is he going to sustain this? I don't think so. The hit tool is the biggest thing that was going to be the question mark coming into this. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the next couple of weeks he keeps hitting because the league still doesn't know it. Um, he's still relatively new. There's some video out on him now, but th- th- it's going to take a while for the entire league to kind of know how to pitch him and to know where his weaknesses are. When the league figures that out, that's going to be when we see the real Jeremy Pena because when the league figures out where to throw him, what pitches he struggles with, what quadrants of the strike zone he struggles with, they're going to attack him and they're going to attack him with those pitches. They're going to attack him in those quadrants. And when those struggles happen, is Pena going to be able to keep this same poise and this same uh, polish that has been so lauded throughout his minor league career and these six games? I tend to think he will. Um, but I mean, everyone processes struggles differently. Everyone processes kind of failure differently. This is a game of failure. And this is a kid that still only has, you know, not counting the major league games he's played. He's still only played 30 games above high. A. This is, um, this is still a very relatively inexperienced guy. So, um, first glance, he certainly looks the part. He made every play hit to him minus one on opening night where he had a bad throw. Um, literally from pitch one looked comfortable because the first pitch of the season was grounded straight to him. He had to make a charging play and throw out Shohei Otani. And once he did that, I think he could exhale a little bit and now he's just going to play and they're not asking him to be Carlos Correa. They're asking him to be Jeremy Pena. And I think the version that we saw of Jeremy Pena this week is plenty good enough to be a a shortstop for the Astros. And I'll point it out that as of this conversation, uh, he's hitting 81 points higher than Carlos Correa, 292 to 211. I don't expect that to stay the same, but, uh, and I believe they each have one home run uh, at this juncture. So um, talking about kind of, uh, you were talking about the speed element and another player we're seeing that from is Jose Siri. And it's an interesting um, development in center field. You got Jake Myers out and Chaz McCormick and Jose Siri both getting time, and I believe they're the top two hitters on the club at the moment. But um, I like what you, uh, one of the stories you had this week, talking about the Jose Siri experience. Um, I was thinking about the Jimi Hendrix experience when I when I saw that. But um, what is it he brings to this club? Because it seems like he's another player who is kind of, um, uh, he's kind of, as you said, the anti, the almost the anti-Michael Brat- Brantley in terms of demeanor, but seems to, it seems like his teammates like this guy. Yeah, Jimi Hendrix is a lot more mellow than uh, Jose Siri. <laughs> believe me. Believe, believe me. Uh, look, Jose Siri, um, I thought Michael Brantley put it best. He's going to push the envelope every day, and they like that. Dusty Baker has been effusive in praise for Jose Siri, dating back to last season, dating back to before he even came up. Dusty Baker was advocating for the front office to bring Jose Siri up last year. And, you know, he, they did in September and he came up and certainly the Jose, the Jose Siri experience was, was born. Look, this is going to be a guy that frustrates the ever living heck out of you for some games. And then other games, you're going to be like, this guy needs to be in the lineup every day. 
And that give and take is going to be very frustrating for Astros fans sometimes. Um, sometimes it's going to result in the sort of game-winning plays like you saw in the first game in Arizona when he takes the extra base on the hit and then scores the winning run on Brantley's single. And then you're going to see times where earlier in that game against the Diamondbacks, he gets thrown out stealing second when Dusty Baker said he shouldn't have been running in the first place. This is a guy that likes to create action. He likes to be the center of a lot of, I don't want to say center of attention, but he likes to be in the, he likes to make things go. He's the straw that serves the drink, if you will. Um, He's not going to hit like Reggie Jackson hit, but um, he is certainly a guy that, Bring something to a team that doesn't really go in the box score all the time. You, you can't measure energy and you can't measure just kind of just a, like electricity that doesn't show up in a line score. Um, but they seem to like it. You know, look, that team needed a lift on Tuesday. That, that, that Diamondbacks team is dreadful. There was nobody in that stadium. They, the bats were lifeless for the first four or five innings. And then Jose Siri comes up hits one 460 feet and bat flips on Madison Bumgarner, who notoriously hates bat flips. This guy does not care. This guy, he plays with no blood pressure. He plays with almost no heartbeat. And this is the same kind of stuff we say about Michael Brantley, but it's a completely different sort of way they go about it. This guy does not care. And I think that can be very good, but it can also be very bad. And look, the give and take of this is going to be what Dusty Baker has to has to really think about when he when he pencils in his lineups. We have seen Siri start against left-handed pitching predominantly, and Chaz McCormick get uh, a lot of the starts against right-handed pitching. They both hit right-handed, so there's no platoon thing going here. But um, I think generally over the next couple of weeks, what you're going to see, you're going to see Jose Siri maybe in the outfield when a fly ball pitcher's on the mound, like Jake Odorizzi or Justin Verlander or Jose Urquidy, and you could see. Chaz McCormick in center when a guy like Fromber Valdez or Luis Garcia is on the mound, they get more ground balls and fly balls. But Dusty Baker is committed to the timeshare. He's not going to play one guy more than the other unless it absolutely forces his hand. And Chaz McCormick has done just as well as Jose Siri, maybe not with the highlight reel sort of stuff that Siri's done. But um, this is going to be a timeshare going forward. And uh, it'll be really interesting to see when Jake Myers gets back how this happens, because if both these guys keep playing this well, um, there has to be an odd man out in this situation. And I I don't know how you proceed it. That's again, that's a problem they would love to have going down the road. But for now, the Jose Siri experience is here to stay. You know, if we talk about Major League Baseball and its attempt to draw young fans and this year, we were talking about his confrontation with Madison Bumgarner and that at bat leads me to this question is, is it time for people to get over the bat flip in terms of disrespect and just understand that it's a fun game. You're, you're bringing players from different cultures to express themselves differently from people who maybe have grown up in the United States, because um, if people listen to this podcast, they, they probably pick up that I'm more of an old school guy in certain regards, but I, I tell you, I'm over the bat flip. I like the bat flip, but what is the general tenor in baseball right now of this type of behavior? And are people getting over it? I think people are getting over it. I think one of the things during the 2019 World Series that made me just lose my mind was in game six, after Alex Bregman brought his bat to the first base coach, Don Kelly, after hitting the home run, Juan Soto did the same thing. And both managers chided them post game as if they were children. And it's like, what are we doing here? 
This is what we want. Like, was anybody harmed by that? Like, no, like no one threw at anyone. No one got hurt. These were two dudes just, you know, they got caught up in the moment. They, they didn't egg the other team on. There was no sign of disrespect. This was two guys just being young and crazy on a huge stage and they got chided for it. And it's just like, I, I think we've moved past that now. You know, the Giants and the Padres had a little bit of a dust up. I don't know if you even want to call it that. They had one earlier this week where the Giants were bunting in a 11 to 2 game that they were winning in the eighth inning. You know, my response to that don't get down 11 to 2 if you don't want people bunting on you. Um, you know, look, there are so many ways that we can grow this game and get you know, more fans into a more younger generation. And look, is a younger generation going to tune in because a guy bunts up eight in the, in the, in the eighth inning? No, but they may tune in because Ronald Acuna Jr. Flips his bat to Mars after hitting a home run or Juan Soto when he does his little antics in the box, when he's shaking his butt and like doesn't does his lunges and stuff like that's great theater. And it's good theater to see, you know, and I was actually pretty like proud. I don't want to say, I don't know. Proud's the right word, but, Madison Bumgarner got bat flipped on. Jose Siri stutter stepped before he started going up the first baseline. And, you know, cameras didn't really catch Madison Bumgarner paying it much mind. He stared him down. Don't, don't get me wrong, but he didn't yell at him. The, the benches didn't clear. There was nothing. And we moved on. And, you know, I wrote about it that night, but aside from me writing about it, it didn't really get mentioned much. And I think that's probably the best thing is that it happened. Um, uh, a curmudgeonly pitcher, if you will, a guy more old school like Madison Bumgarner, let it happen and move on. Because you know what? If you hit a ball 400, if I hit a ball 460 feet off anybody, I'm celebrating the hell out of that thing. I don't care. I don't care what baseball's unwritten rules are or who, who, or what people are going to tell me. I'm flipping my bat to the moon if I do that. And all credit to Jose Siri and credit to anyone that wants to do that. I'm all for it. Let's, let's let the kids play and let the kids flip their bats. Yeah. And no one, you know, and again, the flip of the bat flip is pitchers who get demonstrative demonstrative after an inning strikeout. No one seems to have an eye, uh, a beef with that. So it's just, it's just players reacting to, to doing something big. And um, I think, you know, in 2022, yeah, let, let, let them celebrate. Why not? Um, if I ever hit a ball 460 feet, I'd just retire instantly upon entering the pot. I wouldn't even, I, I, I'd be happy. Yeah. Uh, so looking ahead, the series coming up, Seattle, first meeting between the Astros and the Mariners. I was looking at some of Seattle's stats. And when you talk about the league-wide, league-wide malaise and hitting, I think the, the Mariners are doing their uh, best tribute to uh, former Mariner Mario Mendoza, because other than J.P. Crawford, they're about all below 200 at the moment. But um, first meeting with the Mariners club that um, is, in it to win it, I think at this point, some good young prospects. Um, what would you tell us about things to look for in the Seattle series? Well, it'll be interesting to see how they handle kind of a, a real emotionally charged ballpark. This is going to be Seattle's home opening series. They started the, ser- the season on the road, and look when when the Mariners are good, their fans are unbelievable. They pack that ballpark out, and it can be a rowdy atmosphere. Um, I think Friday is going to be pretty rowdy. Um, a lot of people are excited to see Julio Rodriguez, their best prospect who made the opening day roster. And like you said, they did a lot of things this winter to put themselves in contention. They signed the reigning Cy Young winner and, and Robbie Ray. Marco Gonzalez is more than a capable uh, frontline starter. He'll start the home opener for them. You know, they've, they've got – they traded for Jesse Winker, probably one of the most underrated players in baseball. Eugenio Suarez is there. They've got former Astros – 
friend Abraham Toro, who seems to just destroy the Astros every time he faces them. He did last year after the after the trade. So it's a formidable lineup. For my money, I think this is the team that you have to keep an eye on in the division. I, I think the Angels are too top-heavy. I think once you get past Otani, Rendon, and Trout, that lineup is very pitchable. I'm not sold on the pitching additions that they did add. Though they are deeper on the mound, and they pitch well against the Astros. I think the Mariners are just – a deeper, more all-around club. So I'm pretty excited for this series. I think it should be – I don't know if measuring sticks the right word. This is such a long season, and you don't want to draw any conclusions off of three games. But should be interesting to see how they match up. Um, this is – and I don't want to undersell this. You know, the Mariners remember 2018 and 2019 pretty well. In those years, the Astros just absolutely destroyed them. Um, the, the, those were Mariners teams that were nowhere near contention. They were trying to lose – and the Astros just, I believe one of those years, I don't know if it was 18 or 19, uh, the they—the Astros went 18 and one against them. Just absolutely killed them. And, you know, it's not one of these like big rivalries like that you're going to think of, but trust me when I tell you, like the Mariners remember that. They remember just getting their brains beaten out by the Astros for that long. And there is a, a little bit of heightened sense of urgency when that team shows up to the ballpark. They played them much better last year. I believe the Astros won the season series, but it was close. Um, so that is still in their memories. And I do believe that's going to be something that, you know, they, they, they get their edge out a little bit when the Astros come to town. So it'll be fun. It'll be fun here in Seattle. Uh, the first three of 19 that could go a long way in determining, uh, their playoff positioning for both teams. Mariners three and four Astros four and two. Um, and neither team has played a home game as of this point that Seattle gets its first home game on Friday night. And then the Astros come home. They'll start their first home stand on Monday as the Los Angeles Angels pay them a visit. Well, Chandler, always great to talk to you, and uh, we thank you for your insights as always. I remind our uh, listeners that you can uh, follow Chandler in the pages of the Houston Chronicle and at HoustonChronicle.com. He's also on Twitter at Chandler underscore Rome. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Texas Sports Nation podcast. I'm Steve Schaefer, and we'll talk to you soon. 